most grownups I ask, because I, I talk about the pediatrifying of Hanukkah, um, that it's been pediatrified to the point where you ask grownups about Hanukkah and they're like, um, something about some Maccabees. There was a fight. We won. They didn't kill us. Then we lit something that was supposed to be short, but it got longer. And we eat latkes <laughs> and brisket. <laughs> so if you're of Eastern European descent. So um, I love that y'all want to have a, a little bit you know, more sophisticated conversation <laughs> about Hanukkah and the themes of Hanukkah and what it's about and why we should care. If we're not giving pre- if I don't get a present, why should I care? That's, that's kind of what this class, that's the theme of this class. If I don't get a present, why should I care? So, so as always, you know how I work. Those of you who studied with, have studied with me, you know how I work. I work from here's historically how it came to be. Here's the con- context it was in. Here's, here's how it developed over the centuries. And then here's what we need to think about what it means for us. That's what we're going to do tonight. Um, and so Rebecca, thank you so much as always for being here um, because she's going to help put some stuff on the screen. We're going to screen share some texts uh, and all that good stuff so that we can really look at the development of the idea of Hanukkah um, and the actual ideals of Hanukkah as it has evolved. All right. So when we want to start the conversation about Hanukkah, what are we even talking about? Like, what are the events that we're talking about? When did they happen in history? And I got to tell you, it took me years and years and years and years and years and years of learning this over and over and over to remember it. I don't know why. The dates, the context, it like it, it just has eluded me forever. So um, I think I finally have it. But of course, I have notes in front of me because I still kind of forget. But What's important to remember is if you will take yourselves back to 334 BCE, 334 BCE, what happens during that period? Alexander the Great. That, that's the context where Hanukkah begins. Alexander the Great conquers the known universe, right? Any universe that our people cared about. Alexander the Great was the one who built an empire that included Judea. So uh, so that little space that we call Israel, like that was absorbed into Alexander's empire. That's who ruled the land of Israel. Once Alexander shockingly dies, he dies shockingly young, everything is in turmoil, right? So, so Alexander's empire gets divided, essentially, uh, into into the Seleucid Empire. That's what we have in Syria, Iran, Iraq. That was the the neighborhood of Israel back then. That was the Seleucid Empire. That's who takes over Alexander, the third of Alexander's empire that we're concerned with. There was Egypt. That was the Western uh, division, the third that was the Ptolemies, and and then you, so you have his empire being divided and there's naturally tension between them. So whoever's ruling needs to worry about, you know, their area and who they're competing with and how these, these sections of uh, Alexander's empire are going to deal with one another. There's, there's battles, there's fighting, there's all kinds of craziness. 
The thing to know is that Alexander had been very gracious to the populations that he conquered. Very gracious. He said, here's the Greek way of life. Come join us. And guess what? The Jews said, okay, count us in. The merchant class, the aristocracy, royalty, and the priestly class all bought in to the Hellenizing influences of Alexander's Greece. It was intellectually open, intellectually respectful. It was philosophically respectful. Um, Judaism remained deeply impacted by Platonism and Aristotelianism. Maimonides was a Neoplatonist, a Neo-Aristotelian. Maimonides, how many centuries later, was influenced by Aristotle, and Plato. That thinking is what's going on in Israel as part of uh, Alexander's empire. It was very seductive. The intellectual Jews, the wealthy Jews, the folks who had some time and energy to spend on philosophical pursuits were very drawn to Hellenized Greece or Hellenized, you know, being Hellenized in general. Baths, spas, Lisa Simon, Korean spas, like, right, that we know and love, right? So the, the same attractions were in place under the Greek Hellenizing culture as are in place for us Jews right now in America. Exactly the same forces. Intellectually open, philosophically open, open to different rituals, different people's way of expressing, you know, their relationship to these philosophical ideas, uh, full acceptance um, in the, in the broader culture, in the dominating culture, uh, intellectual curiosity wedded to an appreciation of the body of the physical. It was really attractive to the Jews of Israel who lived under Alexander. All right, so Alexander dies. The kingdoms get divided. Israel's in the Seleucid uh, realm of Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, right? As it is still. Like, it's in the same neighborhood it's always been in. Um, And so... The Jews of Judea really didn't care who ruled them. They, they, they didn't have sovereignty. They didn't care who ruled them as long as that ruling force was a positive influence on how they live their lives. So there's, in the historical record, I have read so many different versions of what happened that I don't know what happened. Like I would have to really get a PhD to know exactly what happened. But something happened that the Ptolemies and the Seleucids were in conflict. Antiochus Epiphanes was suspicious that the Jews, one one version, he was suspicious that the Jews were not support. He assumed they would support him in his war against the Ptolemies in Egypt and was really teed off when they didn't. Other people want to say, No, he went there. There were rumors and reports back to the Jews that he was dead. So they deposed his puppet high priest, Menelaus, and put Jason in, um, who was pro, you know, another part of the Greek empire after uh, Alexander. Whatever it was, Antiochus was furious with the Jews. 
And so he cracks down in a serious way on all Jewish tradition, all Jewish practice, all Jewish ritual. Killed, you're killed for teaching Torah. You're killed for observing dietary laws. You're killed for observing Shabbat. Like he was really, really mad. So what's fascinating to me about this is there was most of the Jewish aristocracy, most of the Jewish leadership was Hellenized. They were ready to be Hellenized, mostly Greek cultural Jews. What would have been left of Judaism, we could ask ourselves, had Antiochus not cracked down? Because what happened when Antiochus cracked down is that the zealots, as we call them, but the folks who were really attached to Jewish ritual, attached to Jewish life, attached to going to church, like they said, you can't stop us from going to church. You can't issue a mask mandate. You can't issue, we can't gather in public spaces. No way. So who was it who rebelled? Uh, a, a, a priestly family, Mattathias, and his and his Judas Maccabeus, right? We know this. Uh, he is the son of of Matityahu, Mattathias, the priest from a priestly family. He wasn't in power. Mattathias was not in power. He was he was on the edge. He was a fringe Jew who insisted on the Jewish rituals, the Jewish. Uh, right to practice those rituals. Remember that when the Hellenizers came in and the priests agreed to that, the temple became kind of a mix between Israelite cult religion and Greek gods and statues in the temple. It was agreed to by the priesthood, by the king. Had Antiochus not issued all of these horrible edicts, who knows? what would have happened. But what we know is he did. And so Mattathias and his five sons led a revolt against this uh, ruler who was making Judaism, uh, not Judaism, it was Israelite practice of any kind, banned. So um, Maccabi, what does it come from? Maccabi, what does that mean? It really doesn't mean anything. Some people think it's uh, initials for me, chamocha, ba'elim, Adonai, who is like you among the gods, right? That it were the folks who were like dedicated to me, chamocha. There's no other way but this way that said, we are going to rise up and we are going to overthrow this. Well, he didn't take that seriously. And because of these little piddly, rebellious little People with payas and black hats, forget it. It's not, it's nothing. That's how they won. He was like, this is nothing. This is like a fly on my shoulder. So they won that battle. Well, that got the attention of not only Antiochus Epiphanes and his army, it got the attention of the locals who said, look at them. They beat the occupying army. Wow. So then when he turned more attention on the, Maccabean revolt, they already now had the support of the population not living in the cities, the population living in the hills, living in, you know, places where they knew the terrain, they could supply the Maccabean army, and the Seleucids had no idea how to fight on this turf, in this terrain, they knew nothing, the locals were not in support of them, a lot of guerrilla warfare went on for three years. 
It took three years for the Maccabees to defeat the Seleucid army, which they did finally. Uh, and they now had independence in Israel. That's the beginning of our Hanukkah story. So most people will go, okay, yay, that's what we're celebrating. The right to religious freedom, the right to religious expression, the right to independence, yay. But that's not where it stops. Because if that were the holiday, why are we lighting a menorah? Right? And so that's not the holiday we celebrate. That's not what we celebrate. What we celebrate is that they took back the temple in kicking out the occupying army. So we're talking about a, an insurgency, just to, so to use the language of our time, just to complicate this a little, using the language of our time, we're celebrating an insurgency against an occupying army that let the religious fanatics take back control of their religious sites. So we're all like, yay, it's Hanukkah. But it's also like, well, let's think about Iraq. Let's think about, right? Let's think about some places we've been as an occupying army where religious fanatics want to annihilate us in order to institute Sharia law, right? So so what we celebrate so easily, it's like not so easy. All right, so that's number one. So number one is Judah Maccabee and his people reclaim not only Israel. What's important for our tradition is that they reclaimed the temple. They could cleanse the temple of all of those horrible pagan things. And then once it was like cleared out of all that junk and all of the dross and all of the statues and all of the rubble from the fighting and all of the whatever, then they could rededicate it. If you're going to rededicate it, how do you do that? What do you do? We now took the temple back. We're going to rededicate it. What does that mean? They'd never lost a temple before to rededicate it. So what do they look to? They look to the first temple's dedication and the second temple's dedication. When did both of those happen? On Sukkot. Both the first temple and second temple were dedicated on Sukkot. How long is Sukkot? Eight days. There was an eight-day festival in each of the temples to dedicate the temple. The Maccabeans had been fighting in the hills during the season of Sukkot. So their favorite temple holiday, they when you go and bring all your first fruits and all that stuff in the last harvest of the year, And remember, we talked about it this Sukkot. We talked about lulavim waving, all of these lulavim waving in the courtyard, right? What it meant for them to burn their underwear. The priests would burn their underwear and torches. And even into the women's quarter, they celebrated. And like torches and dancing. And so it was a huge affair. So the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees had missed that because they'd been fighting. So in the hills. So they thought, okay, first Temple, second temple dedicated on Sukkot. We missed Sukkot. So let's do this. We're going to dedicate, rededicate this temple that we've now taken back and gotten rid of everything that desecrated it. We're going to rededicate it and light that altar fire for an eight-day festival, just like Sukkot would have been that we missed. So on the 25th day of Kislev, 
Um, that's what they did. They began an eight-day festival of rededicating the temple. So that's really where a lot of it should have ended, that that's what we do. We celebrate victory, independence, freedom of religious expression. Yay! And that's our holiday. But that is not what most of us think about. Most of us think, not, not most of us, I'm just saying what we're taught is, wait, there's a miracle. Where's that part? Right? They, they made an eight-day festival. That's all there is in the Book of Maccabees, by the way. That's all that's in the book of Maccabees. They made an eight-day festival. They rededicated the temple. They lit the fire. They made sacrifices. They returned to Israelite cult religion because they could. Yay! That should be the end of it. Mm -mm. Because Hanukkah did not stop there. It was kind of minor. All right, that's a thing we remember. That's a thing we commemorate. Okay, but that's not a really big deal. Why did it continue? It's like us celebrating 4th of July. Okay, yes, independence, yay, we won, we get to be who we are now as Americans, that's great. That should be it, really, what we do on Hanukkah. The reason it's not it is it wasn't America. Israel did not stay independent. Israel did not become its own sovereign nation for very long. The Hasmonean dynasty the king was the same as the high priest. That's already against the rules of Deuteronomy. So, so what the Maccabees put in place as the leadership of Israel was already against the understanding of the division of powers. Those of you who studied Deuteronomy with, with me this past year know exactly what I'm talking about. The king and the priest and the judiciary, they all need to be separate branches as checks and balances on the system. The high priest was the king in Israel and was Hellenized, you know, was so that, so that's what they were reacting against. They put in an ultra-Orthodox Hasmonean and that dynasty becomes incredibly corrupt, incredibly corrupt. So, and it doesn't last very long. It doesn't last very long because who, who comes along? Rome, Rome comes along, Rome conquers Israel. Rome is the occupying force. You're living under Rome. You support the Bar Kokhba revolt, rebellion against Rome, just like you would have supported the Maccabees. And what happens? What's the result of that? The result is the destruction of the temple and the exiling of the Jewish people. That's what resulted under Rome. You rebel under Rome and you are toast. You are worse than toast. You are tortured. You are maimed. You are burned in a wet Torah scroll, right? Babies, they threw them up, speared them on swords for fun. That's what happens when you rebel against Rome. So the rabbis looking at this festival of Hanukkah go, uh, do we really want to celebrate a holiday publicly commemorating overthrowing an occupying army? Not so much. Not so much. That military rebellion, that military victory means nothing in the, in the time of the rabbis. So where do we see all we have for our textual sources for Hanukkah? All we have is the book of Maccabees. 
and the Talmud, right? Those are our sources for anything in the ancient world about Hanukkah. Maccabees. Let's talk about the book of Maccabees. How many of y'all have read it? Show of hands. Who's read the book of Maccabees? Don't be ashamed if you haven't. Nobody, (laughs) right? Why? Why have you not read the book of Maccabees? Because guess what? The rabbis didn't canonize it. Maccabees did not make it into the Hebrew Bible. It's not there. Where does the book of Maccabees survive? The, ironically, the Hellenized Greeks really admired the Maccabees. So they translated the book of Maccabees into Greek. So it survived as a Jewish text in Greek. So who canonized the Greek Maccabean text? The Christians, the church, the church canonized the book of Maccabees and made it part of the Hebrew Bible. It is not part of Torah for us. Torah, uh, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, Tanakh, it's not part of our canonized literature of, of any level. So partly, ironically, how the story of Hanukkah survives is in the Christian liturgical tradition, that these are the sacred scriptures of the Jews. And because the church is the new Israel, we need to take seriously this, this Maccabee business. That's how we have it at all. So I'm going to now share my screen. Hopefully, if not, thank God Rebecca's here and can fix it if I screw something up horribly, which I want to do. Um, So let's go to, and I will share this with you, this document. This is my notes for tonight. Um, So here's the quote that we have from the book of Maccabees about like what was going on at the time. Second Maccabees. Judah Maccabee with his men, led by the Lord, of course, recovered the temple and the city of Jerusalem. He demolished the altars erected by the heathen in the public square and their sacred precincts as well. When they had purified the sanctuary, they constructed another altar. Then striking fire from flints, they offered a sacrifice for the first time for two whole years and restored the incense, the menorah, and the the challah. The sanctuary was purified on the 25th day of Kislev, the same day of the same month as that on which foreigners had profaned it, says the book of Maccabees. The joyful celebration lasted for eight days. A measure was passed by the public assembly, which stated that the entire Jewish people should celebrate these days every year. So this is what we have from Right, our earliest text BCE of the account of, of these events is from Maccabees, preserved ironically by the Hellenized Jews into Christian scripture. Okay. All right. We've talked about the rabbis being uncomfortable with that representation of what they are supposed to celebrate every year. They're told by the book of Maccabees that they're supposed to celebrate this every year. So in the Talmud, the rabbis ask the question, there's no tractate in Mishnah for the holiday of Hanukkah, the festival of Hanukkah. There's no Gemara, really, on the festival of Hanukkah. So what do we have in Talmud? Here it is. My Hanukkah. My Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? This is what's in the Talmud, people, about Hanukkah. Not a whole tractate, not a whole deal. My Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? 
Our rabbis taught on the 25th of Kislev, begin the eight days of Hanukkah, on which we refrain from eulogizing the dead, because it's supposed to be a happy time, and from fasting. So no fasting, because it's supposed to be a happy time. For when the Greeks entered the temple, they defiled all the oils in it. And when the Hasmonean dynasty prevailed over them and defeated them, they searched and found only one bottle of oil that had been sealed by the priest. It contained only enough for one day's lighting, but a miracle was brought about with it and they lit from it for eight days. The following year, they were established as a festival with Hallel and Thanksgiving. This is one tiny paragraph. You may say, eh, who cares? Here's why it matters. This set what Hanukkah was halachically for eternity, including to today. You don't eulogize the dead. You don't fast, but it's not yuntif. There's not even one day of yuntif. Remember, if it's Sukkot, the first day is yuntif, the last day is yuntif. Now it's the first two days are yuntif, the last day is yuntif. No yuntif. You don't refrain from working on Hanukkah. And what is this business with the oil? What's that? This is the first time we see that. This is a rabbinic invention. The miracle of the oil lasting eight days is a rabbinic invention. It exists nowhere in the book of Maccabees. So when you're like, wait, is it a a victory of the insurgency over the occupying army? Or is it a story of a miracle? Uh, Yeah, right. It's both. Because the rabbis were not comfortable with the original meaning and message of Hanukkah being a military victory. And so here we have this quote from Art Waskow from his book, Seasons of Our Joy. I I won't go necessarily through all of it. I wanted to show it to you uh, so that you know what's there if you want to find it uh, on our Bird is always so great about he's going to post this as a podcast with the sources attached, with these sources attached. Um, so that's, that's not what the rabbis wanted to convey, right? Uh, only the rabbinical kind of power, the power, not of rock, but water fluid and soft from moment to moment, and yet irresistible over the long run had survived. So this is the rabbinic reconstruction of Hanukkah. Only the rabbinical kind of power had protected and preserved Jewish peoplehood. Moreover, the Maccabees had made themselves and their offspring kings after expelling the Syrian Greek empire. In itself, that was a violation of the ancient Israelite constitution, which requires the priests and the king to come from different tribes and thereby created a check and balance system between religious and political power. Even worse in the eyes of the rabbis, the Hasmonean kings, despite their imperial anti-assimilationist origins, had invited the Roman Empire to become protectors and overlords overlords of the Jewish kingdom, paving the way for the ultimate Roman conquest. And worst of all, the Hasmonean kings sided with the Sadducees, the priestly upholders of the primacy of temple sacrifice as a channel to God against the Pharisees, the forerunners of the rabbis, who saw prayer and study an interpretation of Torah as the path to God. All right. So what do I want to say about that? What I want to say about that is, so think about the irony of a nationalist group, 
a nationalist group, super America, if you can imagine it, opens the door to Rome, opens the door to Putin, to Erdogan. Really? Could that happen? Does that sound a little crazy to you? Right? So what is Hanukkah? What is the flip of the rabbis on Hanukkah? Is it, yeah, y'all won independence and what did you do with it? You super independent nationalists who ran on a nationalist, xenophobic, religious platform. What did you do with your power once you got in power? You opened the back door to Rome because it would benefit you. It would keep you safe in your job. It would bring you wealth. It would bring you power by being connected to Rome. It would bring you safety. What was it going to do for your people? Well, you know, is that really so important? What was it going to do for the people? No, not so much. So, right? So Hanukkah for me this year feels surreal in terms of the convergences in ways that just have not happened for a long time for me. Like I've known all this stuff for a long time and part of it's here, part of it's there. Each year, part of it comes to the fore, part of it recedes. Oh my God. Oh my God with this, right? So these super nationalist religious zealots are the ones who open the door for Rome. Rome who eventually obliterates Jewish sovereignty in the land and should have at that moment obliterated the Jewish people. Because we were temples destroyed, Jerusalem was blown up, and everyone was exiled. All right. I don't want to spend too long on any one idea because I have so much I want to tell y'all. I have so much I want to share with you. Okay. Um, so, all right. So last week we had this conversation about assimilation, right? And so I have to say that it really pointed me when I thought about the Hashmonim and I thought about Hellenizing and I thought about, wow, like, so really had Hellenization continued without Antiochus doing what he did. Really, I think the Jewish people might not be here right now. But the disturbing part of that question for me, the disturbing part of that is if there isn't active anti-Semitism, what holds the Jewish people together in an environment of religious freedom, acceptance, philosophical openness, cultural seduction of great, wonderful things, wealth, and appreciation of the body. We love all of that. What would keep the Jewish people distinct without Antiochus Epiphanes? And I do believe we are facing this question right now. I hear so many people say, Rabbi, I'm a Jew because it could happen again. I support the Jewish community because they want to kill us. Really? Really? Like, is that who we want to be? Like a people defined by they hate us and they're trying to kill us. And that's what our Judaism is about. That's not a terribly positive, productive, creative, imaginative, future looking Judaism. They're always going to try to kill us, Rabbi. That's why we need a synagogue. That's why we need Israel. That's what really, that's why we need Israel. Cause they're always going to try to kill us. Really? So I want to leave space for people to talk about anything I bring up. I just don't want to do it now or I won't get through a lot of stuff that I'm a lot of stuff to get through. Um, but, but that's a question that comes for me. Like when I really thought about that this year, that without Antiochus, it's, it's possible 
the Jewish people might have disappeared. Um, okay. So I'm loving these people drinking wine. I love that. Like that's, that's the best way to enjoy Jewish history. Cause you know, otherwise, yeah, Robin, I'm looking at you because otherwise it kind of sucks. All right. So, um, so, so this deep divide always between religious zealotry as a force over and against assimilation, we still face this, right? So I have lots of ultra-Orthodox people, Orthodox people who say to me, we are the legitimate, authentic Judaism, and we're the ones fighting for the real Judaism who have always resisted assimilation. You all are, you have weakened the guard at the gate, and you all are letting assimilation kill us, essentially. So there's always been this divide. It's not new. It's not new in 2020. It's not new in this country. This this was already in place, a deep divide between the Jewish people, between are we a, mostly a religion? Are we a culture and a people, you know, who can be open to values and ideals and ideas of the culture that we're living in, the philosophy of the culture that we're living in, that can uplift our understanding of our own tradition and our own culture. So lots of stuff there. Um, and so I'm supposed to look at, look at my big caps for myself. Stop for questions or comments. Because like, I know I might get on a roll. I know myself well enough to know I might could get on a roll. All right. So hands up if you have questions. If you know how to raise your hand in the little thingy, it helps Rebecca keep track. So if you can raise your little blue hand, that's helpful. If you want to just raise your physical hand until we call on you, you can do that. So Susan Mock and Bert. Uh, so Susan, go for it. Unmute yourself though to talk. Or not. Go ahead. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, shalom and happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. In 1995, I had occasion to call the Union of Orthodox Rabbis because that year we were planning on getting married. And the best date for us was December 17th, which was the first night of Hanukkah. And I spoke to two rabbis, both of whom said, Mazel, live a happy life. It is the only true festival. As you said, no work, no ban on cooking, no ban on music, no ban on photographers. He said, just go. So I just thought, this is what Hanukkah means to us. Oh, uh, look at that. So this is their actual wedding anniversary, married on the first night of Hanukkah because the rabbi said, yeah, there's no prohibitions. Yes. Just a groovy time. Yeah. Mazel tov, mazel tov. How many years? 25. 25 years tonight, people. 25 years tonight. How awesome is that? Um, so, Bert, you were going to say something? This is so depressing. <laughs> wait, just wait. It's going to get better. Don't worry. Well, I mean, I mean, <laughs> it may be true, but if, for me, the, the, if I can use the word, the reconstruction of Hanukkah has turned it into something very beautiful. And listening, right. I hope you go there because... I will. You've, almost, I will. you've almost convinced me not to light candles. <laughs> it's like, you know, I don't want to know how the sausage is made. <laughs> I just want to know how wonderful it tastes. And, 
I mean, I know there's a lot of issues, the issues you raise, there's the fake Christmas issue and whatever, but I know certainly for our family and I know for many other families, Hanukkah has been turned into, if you want, the festival of lights. And Jews have, from however it began, turned it into something incredibly wonderful and loving. And so, frankly, this may be where it came from, but I'll try and forget it. So, right. So walk with me, Bert. Trust me that I will walk us through the reconstruction of Hanukkah because we're going to end with the candle lighting tonight for the first night of Hanukkah. So trust me, we're going to be good. We're going to be okay. Um, and and uh, I love, that he says, I don't want to know how the sausage is made when he comes to Torah study every week and has since the day I came here 10 years ago. So love that he doesn't want to know how the sausage is made, but yet reads the sausage ingredients every flipping Shabbos. So. Uh, but, the, but the Hanukkah sausage is I know, the Hanukkah sausage is particularly difficult to swallow. When and it, it tastes so good with latkes. I know. What are you going to do? Kishka. All right, somebody else got something to say before we move on? Everybody hanging out? Everybody Dana Fine. Dana Fine. Dana Fine, speak, please. Okay. Quick question. So this book of Maccabees, when was it written? Because it feels like it was written and it's a truthful document, a fact, because it really happened versus, you know, our Torah. Yeah, yeah. So what, what is the date of that? Yeah. So it's like first, second century BCE. So yes, it, it actually does recall the events it, as, you know, as far as it's not, it's not like hundreds and hundreds of years later. It is a little like us remembering from, from some documents, what the the Revolutionary War might have been. So you've got spin on everything, but but pretty much, there's no reason not to trust that the 25th day of Kislev was the day that they instituted an eight day festival to rededicate the temple. There's really no reason to doubt like that stuff. There isn't a lot of philosophical stuff in the Maccabees, right? It's like, well, except you know, led by the Lord. <laughs> you know, that, that might be a little bit of philosophy or theology, but. But it, it's pretty much kind of the story of what happened. It's the rabbis who introduced this whole other element, right, of the miraculous um, into, the, into the mix, into the story. I just want to check the chat because I always got to check the chat, make sure nobody's saying something there because they're these techno savvy people who that's how they comment. All right. So someone mentioned Christmas envy and, and, and uh, Bert, you said something about Christmas also. So I, please make sure I get to that because it's really important for me. Because I've had some radical, I've had a radical change in my life around my approach to that whole business. So please keep me honest and keep me um, attached to that. I do think I could say it at this point in our historical, uh, uh, you know, reminiscences of Hanukkah is that I think the pagan cultures that celebrated solstice and a big festival of light around solstice, you will never convince me that our Hanukkah thing survived in part out of solstice envy. I believe the reason this thing survived at all, because it didn't last. It's not like the 4th of July, where we're still an independent nation, right? It didn't last. It should have gone away. Yeah, we beat them up once, but then they came back and schmiced us. They blew it all up. They destroyed everything. We commemorate that. Hanukkah should have disappeared. Really, think about it. Once the second temple was destroyed, we were dispersed. Jerusalem was literally blown up all that oxygen in the stone was lit on fire and it blew Jerusalem up. 
When that happened, Hanukkah should have gone away. Who cares that once upon a time we won independence? We're not independent. We don't even have access to our land. We can't even go there. So I do believe part of how it survived at all was solstice festival envy by the Jews. Everyone had something going on around solstice. And so the Jews, I do think it fueled part of the survival of, uh, of our, uh, our tradition. All right. So I got to get to helping Bert. I got to help him out here. All right. So we've stopped for questions. Solstice envy. Look at that. Look at that. I even addressed it before it came up on my notes. Look at that. All right. So this idea that the that lighting the menorah in the temple was one of the central rituals. When you're going to rededicate the temple, what do you need to do? You need to light a fire on the altar. And part of the regular practice, the ritual in the temple was lighting the menorah, the seven-branched menorah. That was a part of the daily temple ritual. That's what they could do again on the 25th of Kislev was light the menorah, the seven-branched menorah in the temple. Not to be confused with the Hanukkah, the menorah we light, nine candles for Hanukkah. Okay, so stay with me, stay with me. So they could reinstitute the practice of lighting the menorah in the temple once they won victory. All right, so... They rededicate it. It's an eight-day festival, yada, yada. So now menorah, this idea of lighting the menorah, once the temple is destroyed, becomes the only thing left of that ritual dedication that we can do. There's no sacrifice, thank God. So there's no altar fire, thank God, except for our grill outside where we grill steak, which is pretty much the same thing as the altar, but we won't go there right now. That's a different discussion. Um, so, so the lighting of the menorah becomes the only way to really attach ourselves to what they did in that rededication festival. They lit the menorah again. We can't light a sacrificial fire and offer sacrifices. We don't have a temple. We don't have a priesthood, but, but this idea of lighting the lights that the candle, that the oil was there for one day and it lasted for eight. That's how we have eight candles, We have eight little flames to represent the eight days that the cruise of oil lasted. uh, And that's why we light eight candles. So my question to you is, all right, we have this story that they break in to the temple. They're ready to rededicate the temple because they've taken over. They've cleaned it up, whatever. They find only one cruise of sanctified oil. One cruise that, that has the seal of the high priest that says, this is kosher. This is kosher. You can use this for, for temple ritual purposes. One cruise. It's enough to last for one day. What would y'all do? Melody's family over there, speak. I mean, obviously I'd ration it. <laughs> You'd ration it. You, you don't have enough. You don't have enough for eight days. So what you, we'll do an hour a day of flame, Right. So one idea would be to ration it, to say, we don't have enough oil for eight days. So let's, let's light it for one hour or two hours. I don't, I'm not a good math person, as you can tell. Um, three hours every day for eight days, we're going to have flame. And that's all we can afford to do. Okay, that's one option. What's another option? What would y'all do? 
Go to Costco and buy more. Go to Costco and buy more. If you can't buy this at Costco, you can only get it from a high priest and it takes eight days to purify more. What would you do? Light it only at night to give light. Light it only at night to give light, but it won't last all night for eight days. So will you pick what hour of the night? Is it when we go to bed? Maybe we say when we go to bed, we're going to light it for three hours, put it out. So we have three hours the next night. Okay. Wait till the last night. Maura Tanzer. See, this is why I love this woman so much. I love this woman. Wait, you just wait till, till there's more oil purified. You wait the eight days till you have a, enough oil to last for an eight day festival. She's so practical. Whenever people in my, oh, sorry, I'm getting animated. My, my coach would say you're getting really animated. So um, I'm going to take a deep breath and settle down. But I'm excited. Like, cause like more is ex- like, right. Like, like, right. It's so Jewish. It's like, you know, like, wait, what are we going to do? I don't know. We can light it in the day. We can light it a little in the night. We can light a little bit of a time. Right? And so when I as a rabbi was dealing with Jews, I would call Mora as the president. <laughs> and say, now I call her all the time since she's not president and say, Mora, what am I not seeing? Like, there's something I'm not seeing. There's something we're not coming up with here. And Mora goes, uh, why don't you just wait till there's more purified oil? Hello? People, that's all they had to do. Sukkot was over. Sukkot was gone. <laughs> all they had to do was wait eight days till there was more purified oil. They could have purified as much as they wanted to in eight days. But they didn't do that. More, <laughs> why do you think they didn't do that? What's that about? Okay, you're going to roll your eyes, but it didn't happen. It, the rabbis made it up. So what, no, what, this what one, it didn't happen, but the exodus. Okay. So, so we're, no, but, another conversation we'll have on your back porch. But, I understand. But you said that the rabbis made up this story. Why would they make up the story that they discovered one cruise of oil and lit it anyway for an eight day festival when all they had to do was wait? Because it's all about, it's, it's look dumb. It's all about the same story over and over again. You have somebody has to, you have to, you have to put the first foot forward. Like the Uh parting of the sea. You have to have faith. There's my Mora Tenzer. You have to put the first foot forward into the sea or it cannot part. The miracle of the sea parting cannot happen if you don't take the first step. It's so Jewish. We don't have enough oil. Ay, Vazmir, what are we going to do? Ganesh, Ganesh, what, what, what are we going to do? Ah, light it anyway. <laughs> like, like, right. Right. We, we take the that. first step anyway. Anyway. So solstice, I talked about solstice envy. Let's talk about solstice for a minute. What does solstice celebrate? What is solstice about? 21st of September. Uh, sorry, of December, because they're on a lunar uh, solar calendar, solar calendar, winter solstice, December 21th. Shortest day of the year. Shortest day of the year, because what happens on the 22nd? The The light starts to come back and you have the, the days lengthening. You have what? You have the return of the light. 
the return of the sun, S-U-N. Yes, that's what pagans celebrated. That's what Jews kind of like, well, we need something too, don't we, with light and fire this season, right? Yeah, of course, because it's dark and it's scary. And in ancient times, and for many peoples in this world, still it's really scary. So darkness is all about scary, lonely, dangerous. Yeah, so we all need rituals of light around that. Solstice is what the pagans chose. The days are getting longer. The sun has returned. What do the Christians do? The sun, S-O-N, has been born and will return. The light of the sun, S-O-N, that saves the world has come into the universe on the 25th day of the solar month of December, meaning the light's already started to return because it's after solstice, right? That's when everybody celebrates. When do Jews celebrate? The darkest time of the darkest moon of the lunar month, the darkest month of the solar year. The Jews light one tiny little flame when there's no evidence the light will ever come back. There is no evidence the days are getting longer. There's no evidence it's going to be okay. There is no evidence. There's no proof. There's no even hint that it's going to be okay. That's when Jews celebrate their festival of light. How much do we love that? How much do we love that? We don't wait for evidence. We don't wait for proof. We don't wait for, we trust and know it's going to come around because it's the solstice, the sun, and then the sun, S-O-N, it's going to be born and we're going to be saved. Not Jews. Jews don't look to this season and say we're going to be saved. Jews say light the first candle. Light one tiny little flame. That's all. That's all you're asked to do. When it's hopeless, when it's scary, when it's dark, when you think there's no evidence that it's ever going to get any better, just like one tiny little flame. That's it. That's all you're asked to do. But if you do that every night for eight nights, what happens? You create a menorah, something that brings and gives a lot of light. And just one tiny flame. If you keep doing that over and over, says the practice of Hanukkah, one little flame doesn't dispel a lot of darkness. True. But if you keep doing that, if you add to that, if you light flames off of that one, it's ad infinitum. You can light as many torches off one little flame as you want, and it doesn't diminish the first flame. That's what Hanukkah is about. I told you to trust me, Bert. That's what it's about. It's not that we're going to win the war. It's not that we're going to be independent. It's not that we're going to get the temple. But it's, it's not, that's not it. It's about, it's dark out there, people. It's dark. And so we're asked to light one little flame. But if we do that over and over and over again, what the eight nights of Hanukkah teach us is that we create something that create, that dispels a lot of darkness. If we just keep doing that little bit over and over and over and over again. And if eight nights gives us that, imagine a lifetime of lighting little flames, lighting just what we can. And when it's darkest, that's what I love. Jews are so 
different than everybody else. I love this. It makes me crazy because I, I live and work with Jews. It makes me crazy. And it is the beauty of what it means to be part of this people is that we are not Dafka, the ones that celebrate the light returning. We are not Dafka, the ones that say the savior is going to come save us. That is not who we are. We're like, nope, it's pretty dark. It's pretty cold. It's pretty awful. Remember, those Jews are in Russia. They're in Poland. They're like, they're in really cold places saying this is really bad. Cossacks are coming. We have no control. Auschwitz, whatever you, wherever you want to put it. It doesn't matter. Jews say it's dark out there. People, people are vulnerable and we're aware of that. It's so just one little flame. That's what we're asked to do. Night after night, after night, after night, day after day, after day, after day. That creates something that dispels a huge amount of darkness. Ann Roberts, speak to us. Um. I'm wondering how much it is sort of similar to the notion of the lighting the candle by the time you get to the eighth one, that it's almost akin to the Havdalah candle. I totally, yes, I totally agree. So what's interesting is that the rabbis discuss this a little bit, not, not the older rabbis, like, like current, the Kabbalistic, you know, mystical tradition discusses this. So if we say two little lights on Shabbos, begin Shabbos, then Havdalah is you bring those wicks together and you make a torch. So shouldn't we kind of do that with Hanukkah? That, you know, you start with one wick, but by the end you end with a eight wicked candle. That's like a huge flaming torch. Wouldn't that be the way to do it? But here's the thing. The spiritual teaching that they have is that mm -mm, it's about each discreet individual, tiny act, each individual day, each individual night, each individual person, each individual thing we choose to do or not do, those are separate. I was thinking in a slightly different way, though. I was thinking in terms of the eight candles become a community. Yes. So, so yes. So, so not the, not the, the Abdullah, but the, the rabbis together. were very clear. It shouldn't be that eight wicks come together because right. what you said, it's eight distinct personalities, eight distinct people create a different kind of light together than if you smash them all together. Right. So beautiful. Anne. beautiful. Thank you. Um, do we have another hand up? Do we have another comment? I think we all need to look at Jackie Madoff's background. For uh, Amy, excuse me. Yes. Um, where did the idea of a gift for every night of Hanukkah? Come. Christmas. Oh, <laughs> that came from Christmas. So, okay. So this leads me into what I was going to talk a little bit about, about <laughs> like, I've changed a lot on this. When I was younger, I know it's going to be hard for y'all to believe, but I was a bit of a zealot. I know. I know. It's very difficult to believe. I was a, <laughs> I was a bit of a zealot saying like, what the heck? Like nobody knows what Hanukkah is about anymore because of these stupid presents. It's all about presence. It's all about the kids. We've pediatrified Hanukkah, which is why I'm offering this class, by the way. We've pediatrified Hanukkah. Adults don't understand anything about it. Why should they bother lighting candles? Because it's all about presence for the kids. And like, what is that? Materialism, blah, 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 blah. So, um, so Winnie, the quick answer to your question is Christmas. And my liberal, I'm talking liberal, 
my forget the fundies. They they uh, they probably have the same idea. But I'm talking even my progressive liberal Christian colleagues are horrified by the materialism of Christmas. They are horrified. They are like, this is not what Jesus wanted for his birthday. I can promise you, say my Christian colleagues, this is not what Jesus would want. Jesus would want you giving all of that material stuff to the poor. Jesus would want you given that, give, have you give that to the least among us, right? Because that's, you know, in his teaching me, that's God. The least among us is who represents God. So give it to them. So my, my liberal Christian colleagues are horrified by Christmas. And so they actually had a lot of sympathy when I said, Hanukkah, are you kidding me? Nobody knows what Hanukkah is. Nobody. It's all about presents and whatever and whatever and whatever. Um, here's, I know it's hard to believe because I said that with such strength and passion, but here's how I've softened. I do think that solstice envy, solstice festival envy, lighting the light in the dark is a human need. It is a human need. And that's why there are so many pagan traditions that have something about lighting a fire in the dark. Um, so why not a Jewish one? So why can't, if, if we were like the pagans looking to do that and we could kind of incorporate some of that, why, why not? Okay, so our kids are being raised in competition with Christmas, which let's face it, is one of the biggest ridiculous materialization of any idea ever that ever existed. What do, what do we say to our kids? You're observing the light of the soul and the spirit and the mind. And so you don't get a present because we are like, are you, are you kidding me right now? Like what Jewish families would be like, so yay, we're celebrating the light of courage, the light of independence and freedom. We're celebrating um, one little light every night contributes to lighting the world. Really? Is that really going to work for our kids? No. They live immersed in a culture that is awash in, in Christmas materialism. So, okay. So we also have a festival of light in the darkness. It celebrates something different than we're sinful and need to be saved from that. So we don't burn eternally. We have a different idea. Here's our idea. And you'll get a present and lots of presents. Like, like, you know, I just, I don't know. I've kind of softened around. Why wouldn't we give our kids something that's our tradition or else what's going to happen if we don't have something where we give them presents to in December, celebrate light in December, celebrating joy in December, what, what are they going to have? So I don't know, like, and I'm, I'm not wedded to this cause it's a recent softening. Uh, but I do feel like my kid now that she's not getting presents on Hanukkah. Yeah. We like the menorah. Eh. Eh. Does she really connect to Hanukkah? No. She's going to be here for the seven o'clock candle lighting, which for me is a score around parenting more than anything else. It ain't about her loving Hanukkah, <laughs> right? So, okay. But when she was little, she loved Hanukkah. And so it's like, I don't know. I just, I'm, I've been mixed. I was really against it before. I'm mixed through some of uh, parenting a young child. And now I just feel like, okay, whatever, like whatever it takes to celebrate light in the season of darkness, let's just do it. Everyone's doing it. Let's do ours. We have blue lights. They have red and green lights. Fine. That's fine. Great. Let's do ours. Thank God we can.
right? In that sense, it's, it's a remembrance of the original meaning of Hanukkah. Thank God we live in a time and a place where we can put up blue lights that say to everybody, we're Jewish. This is not a Christmas family. So yeah, you might say, well, lights are already a celebration from a, you know, a Christmas perspective. Okay. Yeah, maybe. But if you put up blue lights, what you're saying is, I get it. I see y'all. We're not that. We're doing our own thing. I don't know that that's such a bad thing. I don't know. What does the blue symbolize? Greek influence? Um, No, actually. It's the colors of the Israeli flag, the blue and white of the Israeli flag. Um, The Israeli flag, blue and white, is about a talit. The image is a talit, which is white. And the the rabbis overruled it, but originally the tzitzit on a talit had a ptil t'chelet, a a strand of blue that had to go in the tzitzit. So blue and white became the image of the flag was like a a talit. There should be blue in it and white in it. Um, Anything else anyone wants to say or ask before we go on? Because yes, I'm going on people. We're going on. So hang on. All right, here we go. Oh, I have a question. Uh-huh. Yes. Hi, it's Anna Faye uh, here. Hi, Anna Faye. Hi, sweetie. Um, so my question was about the moon. You said, you know, Hanukkah happens at the darkest bit of the moon. Is that a consistent thing? Yes. So we go on a lunar calendar. And so the 25th of the lunar month is the darkest time of the moon. It's when it's waning. Right? It's full moon at the 14th of every month. That's why uh, Sukkot, Pesach, all of those holidays happen on the 14th because it was a pilgrimage festival. You needed the bright moon so you didn't run into each other because there weren't enough hotel rooms in Jerusalem for a pilgrimage festival. You needed a light in the sky so that you could all camp and not run into each other. So that's why it's on the 14th of the month. But then that means the 25th of the month, you're going into the darkest part of the moon, into the newest moon, which is also dark. Day 28 is the end of the lunar month, right? And then day one is zero moon. Or sorry, the 28th is probably zero moon. Day one of the next month is a sliver moon. That's when we celebrate Hanukkah. The darkest moon, the smallest moon cycle of the darkest lunar month and the darkest solar month of the year. But of course, hidden in there, good Anafe that you like had a hint of this, hidden in there is okay, but the light is coming back. The moon's gonna wax again. Like we, you know, Hanukkah spans the waning and the waxing of that new moon. So we span Rosh Chodesh, we span the the moon coming back, but the moon looks it's the darkest it's going to be all year for that eight-day period. I have a thought. Yes, please. Um, the act of lighting a candle is uh, a focus, one where you focus, and also an empowerment. So wait, it, say that again? It's where, it's, it, it, it allows you or makes you focus, and it's also an empowering act. To do what? To either make light out of the darkness or have faith in something happening, that there's a strength in your prayer. It, it, I'm thinking of the word, but it enhances um, 
a faith-based act by the, the physicality of it and the specificity of it. Nice. Nice, Mary. Well said. Thank you. And from Melly's home that giving gifts is not inherently a bad thing. People get crazy with it for sure, but it doesn't have to be a bad thing. And so I think that's really important for us to remember and hear um, who kind of resist the materialism around this season is yeah. For my kid, she loved Hanukkah as a little kid. Cause I, and like, I, and by the way, I still buy her gifts, little trinkets for every night of Hanukkah. She's like, mother, why do you continue to buy me stuff? I don't ask for and don't need. And like, she rolls her eyes and I'm like, because I love you. And so I think about at your age right now, what could I buy you? That's not about, you know, something you need like a computer or whatever, but something that I just want to give you because I love you. Um, and so like, she'll get something tonight, you know, that is um, maybe I'll even show you um, at candle lighting, but it's just a really sweet thing that I love. And like, she'll roll her eyes and go, well, thank you so much. Um, but someday she might look at it and go, Oh, like mom, mom gets me. Like I get that. Um, okay. So somebody else, George had his hand up. Yeah. I saw George. Go ahead, George. Yes. Uh the, the uh, darkness about which we then light, if we assume darkness is the anti-Semitism and we want to take action on the anti-Semitism, uh, instead of light, the light is symbolically might mean action. So I want to combine the, uh, uh, say that one of the major uh, things against uh, Judaism now is assimilation and that the anti-Semitism uh, that is increasing uh, will pull the Jewish nations, the Jewish people together again. All right. So George says Antiochus Epiphanes saved the Jewish people. Because of the anti-Semitic pressure on the Jewish people, he saved the Jewish people. I can always count on George to to lift up the anti-Semitism of our time. And that's what I said earlier. I'm not being cheeky, George. I mean it. Like, you know, like it is a question. Like without Antiochus, without what he did, we might not be here. I'm not saying it's a good thing that we want that, but it is a question that we always hold this tension between are we distinct and in what ways? And if assimilation is completely an option and completely seductive without anti-Semitism, who who and what are the pressures that keep us distinctive as a people? I think it's a really important question to be asking so that we can answer in the positive, not the reactive. We can answer in the positive. Here's who we are. Here's what we stand for. Here's how we're different. Here's why that matters. Here's what I love. Here's what I don't want to give up. You know, whatever those answers are, not just they're trying to kill us. Yeah, yeah. it would be great if we could. But I want to also <laughs> just put the symbolism of the darkness and anti-Semitism, and light, and action. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? I don't see any more blue hands. No? Okay. So let's go to, I want to leave you with some spiritual teachings that are, that I'm liking this year. So we're going to go to share screen, and hopefully I'm going to figure this out. Oh, look at that. Okay. Um, Women, by the way, were not supposed to do any kind of housework during the time that the candles were burning. Women only. So the Rashbam and Tosafos start arguing about like, why is that? Like, why is it only women? Well, we were all saved kind of passively 
And Tosa Foot says that can't be. Then why does it only say women aren't supposed to work while the candles were burning? It must be from some unique thing that women contributed to the miracle. And so a lot of them want to say Judith, who cut off the head of Holofernes, the enemy uh, of Israel. That happened on Hanukkah. Okay, just a little tidbit for you. <coughs> women don't do any housework during the time the candles are burning because we chopped off the enemy guy's head. Gotta love that. All right. The other thing is that when you light a menorah, it has to be placed in the window. A menorah is supposed to be placed in the window. Why? To uh, to make famous the mitzvah, to publicize, not, not the mitzvah, to publicize the miracle of Hanukkah, to publicize the miracle that the little bit of oil can last longer, that the little bit of light that you think won't make it can make it. Um, and so I just, I just love this quote from Rabbi Michael Stressfeld, my, my colleague, and I'm, I'm so pleased to say my friend, he wrote the Jewish catalog, the original Jewish catalog in the seventies. If y'all remember that, um, if you're that old, by lighting the menorah, we ignite the flame in our souls, the sparks that cannot be extinguished, that will burn not for eight days, but for eternity. We place the menorah in our windows to be visible to those passing by, just as our inner light must shine against the darkness of evil and indifference and must kindle the spirits of our fellow humans. The menorah reminds us of the miracle that no matter how dark life may be, there remains a source of light deep within us. The light in our souls reflects and retract, refracts the light from the one who is all brightness, right? Like if we don't need to hear that now, I don't know when, and that was not written recently. All right. So there's an argument about how to light the menorah in the Talmud. Do you start with eight candles and go down? Or do you start with one candle and go up? The school of Hillel says you start with one candle and you increase the light. The school of Shammai said, nah, it, you start with eight, eight days are Hanukkah, and each day that goes by, there's one less day left of Hanukkah. Why would you start the other way? We take it for granted. But of course, there was an argument yeah, because it was not evident. You've got eight days of Hanukkah. Take one away because one's gone. Take another one away because another one's gone. That makes sense. That makes as much sense as what we do. All right. So there's a debate in the Talmud between Hillel and Shammai about how the candle should be lit. Hillel says that we should light one light, one the first night, two the second, and so on. Shammai says that we should start with eight candles the first night, then light seven the second, and so on. I would suggest that Shammai is following his general overriding principle to tell the truth. The truth is that we live in a world of ever-diminishing expectations. The moment we are born, we begin to die. Each day brings us one day closer to our last day. For Shammai, truth is the ultimate value. So he says, don't try to hide from it. Don't try to sugarcoat it. We're losing a day every day of Hanukkah. That's how we live our lives. We're losing a day more every day. The deeper truth. Oh, sorry. For Shammai, truth is the ultimate value. Similarly, for Hillel, there's a deeper sense of truth at issue here. The deeper truth is that our lives become ever richer and fuller with the passage of time. 
not increasingly diminished. The light of Hanukkah reminds us of the potential that lies within each moment. The present can be filled with light and that light can increase no matter where we are in the span of our lives. Like life, light can pierce any darkness. How much do we love that? Right? How much do we love that? Because both are true. Both are true. We're one day closer, closer to death every day we live. We got one day less every day we live. But is that how you want to focus your time and energy and attention or that we got one more day? I get one more day to do this. Mary Rappaport, I know how you feel about this. I know how you've talked about, right, the anniversary of your diagnosis that you've said every year for you, it's an anniversary about I get another year. I get at least to see the start of another year. Those of us who miss people who say, yeah, like every day is a day I miss them. It's a day that they light my life. It's a day. It's right. It's it's where we put our focus and attention. All right. So the other tension in Hanukkah is Maccabee versus rabbi. Military victory, strength, might, conquering over, right? The rabbinic interpretation, which is it's a miracle. So I love this from our Waskow Seasons of Our Joy. When Hanukkah is seen as the moment when light is born from darkness, hope from despair, both the Maccabean and rabbinic models fall into place. The Maccabean revolt came at the darkest moment of Jewish history when not only was a foreign king imposing idolatry, but large members of the Jewish community were choosing to obey. The miracle at the temple came at a moment of spiritual darkness when even military victory had proven useless because the temple could not be rededicated in the absence of the sacred oil. At the moment of utter darkness in Modi'in, Matityahu struck the spark of rebellion and and fanned it into flame. At the moment of utter darkness at the temple, when it would have been rational to wait for more oil to be pressed and consecrated, the Jews ignored all reasonable reasons and lit the little oil they had. There is no use pretending that the sun is always bright. There is no use pretending that the moon is always full. It is only by recognizing the season of darkness that we know it is time to light the candles, to sow a seed of light that can sprout and spring forth later in the year. Seen this way, Hanukkah can become a time for accepting both the Maccabee and the rabbi within us, seeing them as different expressions of the need to experience despair and turn toward hope. Seen this way, Hanukkah can become a resource to help us experience our moments of darkness whenever they occur throughout the year and strike new sparks. That feels really significant to me this year, right? That (laughs) Hanukkah can become a resource to help us experience our moments of darkness whenever they occur because they're happening a lot right now. Um, and strike new sparks. We got to be ready to strike new sparks. It's it's not like it's it's lit and done. We have to strike new sparks. They lit they lit flint is what he's referring to. They they did flint to light the altar fire um, when the temple was rededicated. And I th- I think that's what's called for us right now. Yeah, there's a vaccine on the horizon, but not yet. Yeah, there's a vaccine on the horizon, but we're not going to be together probably for our holidays. Yeah, there's a vaccine on the horizon, but for whom? For poor countries, for oppressed peoples, probably not. Like so, we have to we have to strike that flint um, for that first light wherever 
uh, wherever the darkness feels like it's overwhelming. All right. I loved this. Again, not a new quote. This is from the 20, the 2000 election. Uh, the number eight mystically represents transcendence and infinity, one beyond the number seven, which represents the natural cycle. There is a natural limit to all human endeavors, to all human knowledge. But Hanukkah introduces the eighth dimension, the power of transcendence that enables us to go beyond our natural limitations and transform darkness into light. Amen. The festival of Hanukkah calls us to a revolution, a revolution of light fought over centuries by all people seeking true freedom. The festival entreats us to reclaim our most basic freedom, the freedom to rise above our subjective, limited perspective and reach for the above and beyond. As Americans and as citizens of the world, it is our duty and privilege to add to the forces of light, both at home and abroad, in a steadily growing measure.